rough week this week, so to go home and see these packages at their house, um, they were they were moved to tears because of just the, the blessing that he is. I will tell you this: if you if you helped pack the beef jerky, it is gone. Okay, um, this was like Tuesday when they received this, and the beef jerky is all gone. So we need to send them some more beef jerky. They uh, they went through that pretty quickly. The Skittles and the Starburst, uh, Starburst, and uh, the the um, Butterfingers. They still have a good supply of those, but they could use more beef jerky. Anyways, uh, on a serious note, he asked for a couple of things. Um, just yesterday, which would have been uh, Saturday there, obviously, uh, they uh, he was fishing, and uh, he uh, had a conversation with a Muslim man, and the Muslim man uh, invited him over to his house, which is a huge thing, uh, to show some hospitality there, and he was able to share a few stories about Jesus, and um, and the man said um, uh, that he uh, he enjoyed the stories, and that he was going to think on, on the stories, and wanted to know if they could meet up again, and so uh, Chris asked that you would pray for that relationship, that, that it would be able to continue. Uh, Brooke got asked, uh, Brooke is Chris's wife, got asked to attend a wedding of that family this week, so they asked that you would pray for those for that relationship that they would be able to share the gospel with that family and um, and continue to uh, to serve God one other thing that he asked to pray for and maybe this is one of you in here that could fulfill this position but they're looking for someone to go move there and partner with them specifically to teach uh, they have housing available so they're looking for someone that can spend maybe a year uh, working alongside them teaching school um, helping them in the ministry that God has um, got there so if you know of someone or maybe that's you or maybe that's piqued an interest and you might uh, be able to pressure someone someone uh, for the sake of the gospel to move to West Malaysia, that would be great. All right, let me pray for them, and then we'll get started with the word. God, we do thank you for the Macarabies as they're resting um, tonight, God. I pray that you would give them the rest so that they can uh, fulfill the work that you have for them this week. I pray that the relationships would continue as they get to share parables of Jesus and stories about what Christ has done. God, I pray that those stories would uh, would increase in a way that um, their their hearts would be changed uh, so that they may confess Christ as Lord. God, thank you for uh, the fishing that Chris gets to do, fishing for men. And I pray that you continue to use Chris and Brooke and their girls for your kingdom purpose. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Spend some time together studying a uh, final uh, little um, series, uh, message in this series that we've been going through all summer here. This uh, Love My Neighbor, LMN, LBT, talking about being on mission here in Lovington. And uh, we talked about hospitality. There was a great article in the BCNM, the Baptist New Mexican this week about hospitality. I don't know if you read that or not. Uh, talking about a hospitable Savior. Uh, also, we talked about evangelism, about how great our God is and about uh, the need to uh, to go and and share that with the rest of the world. We have this incredible Savior who's hospitable, yes, and He's also great in that He would welcome strangers into His into His place, welcome strangers into His life, welcome strangers and clothe them with righteousness through through His sacrifice. And we talked about disciple making or discipleship, uh, the need for us by uh, words from Christ and the Great Commandment, a um, Great Commission to go out and fulfill the Great Commission by making disciples, teaching them everything that Christ has taught us, uh, baptizing them, making them followers of Christ because, um, because that's what Christ has commanded us to do. And then last week we began talking about uh, what it looks like to neighbor. Uh, what, is, what does it look like? We went through um, Luke chapter 9. What does it look like for you and I to love people who are not like us? What does it look like for us to uh, welcome people who are strangers to us? 
And then this morning, as we look through um, Luke chapter 10, though we've studied the parable of the Good Samaritan before, we're going to point out a few things to you this morning. So um, have you ever thought about what the problem is? You can identify and I can identify problems uh, in all um, different types of of, um, times in your your life. Uh, You're good at, um, and I'm good at, identifying what those problems are. What is the problem? What is the problem? We're quick to identify those problems. The, the, the real issue is how to solve the problem. Or what is the remedy? What is the solution to the problem? I'm in pain. What, where's the pain? What, what's the problem? What's causing that? And then what is the solution? My car has ran out of gas. What's the problem? It won't go any further. What do I need to do to solve the problem? Put fuel into the car, and that will help solve the problem. Um, I'm a terrible cook. What should I do? Take classes. Learn so that people are more uh, in tune to um, to eating the food that you prepare so they're not throwing it out. Uh, learn how to cook. That's the problem. I can't cook, so you learn how you, ha- you learn how to cook. So we, we have to identify the problem, but we also need to know what the remedy is or what the solution to the problem is. And so in general, what is the problem? Well, the problem is people who are created in the image of God are now separated from him because of sin which leads to death. So that is the problem. Let me read it to you again. People who are created in the image of God are now separated from him because of sin which leads to death. So what is the solution to that problem? You're at church. It's a safe spot. And so because of that, you can just answer simply Jesus. Jesus is the answer to that problem. But let me read this to you. The solution is to send a rescuer full of mercy, to establish a new covenant with the people, with those people who are created in the image of God that have been separated from God. So create this new covenant for the people and offer as a once-for-all sacrifice this rescuer's sinless life in place of mine and yours and the rest of the world's sin-filled life in order that he may die in their place and they may have eternal life. The problem is death. The solution is life. How are we going to get to that solution? How are we going to get to that answer? And the answer is we're going to use Christ. Christ is going to be in my place. I'm going to take upon myself the righteousness of Christ. Nothing that you or I can do on our, by ourselves, but Christ has to do it for us. And in our place we become righteous and we get to have eternal life. Christ steps into our shoes, loving strangers who have been separated from him, welcomes you and I and the rest of the world through his sacrifice, welcomes us into his righteousness, welcomes us into his sinless life so that we can have right relationship with the Father again. He gets inside our shoes. He steps in our place. He has empathy, he has compassion. He shows mercy upon us. You have to put those things in your mind this morning. Compassion, mercy, stepping into someone else's shoes. This is the example that our Messiah, that our Christ, that our Jesus gives to us. The Savior comes as a rescuer, steps in our place, takes upon our our sin upon himself and gives us righteousness. He steps in our place and we we get the benefits of that. He loves us as strangers, yet he loves us like his own. Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 10. So after this, the Lord appointed 72 others. If you remember back to last week, to Luke chapter 9, at the beginning of Luke chapter 9, he sends out these 12. He sends out the 12 that he had, he had called out, his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples. He sends them out to go, re- to go and uh, 
and represent him as rescuers or represent him as ministers of reconciliation to the Father. And so after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, not to do things alone. Back to a a, a creation narrative here. Uh, We're thinking about how God did not create us to be loners or did not create us to be alone, but he created us for relationship. He created us to be with someone else. Okay, So he sent them out two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go, going to prepare, going to sow seed for Christ to do work. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Seventy-two seems like a lot. I mean, if you're 72 years in age, you're saying you've got a lot of age to you, right? 72 seems like a lot. 72 workers in Lovington would be incredible. If we had 72 workers who were dedicated to go and plant seed for the sake of the harvest to come. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. Who are we going to pray to? We're going to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So what's the problem here? The problem is is there's a harvest that's plentiful, but there's few workers who are willing to go or who are being sent out to go. The problem is there's few laborers in this bountiful harvest. So the solution is what? The solution is that we, or the Lord's disciples, would pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. By show of hands this morning, this is a little bit conviction, all right? But by show of hands, how many of you in this room have at some point in your life prayed that the Lord would send out more workers into his world to go and make disciples of Jesus? If you've prayed that in some way, raise your hand so we can see that. Raise your hand. All right, a few of us. Okay, now listen to this. If you've prayed that, could we take credit for the McElravies. We prayed, Lord, send out workers into your harvest to go and minister around the world so that more people could hear about Jesus. Well, the McElravies are a result of that. The problem is few laborers, bountiful harvest. We need more laborers. The solution is pray to the Lord of the harvest for more to be sent. Verse 3 says this, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. That sounds fun, right? You know wolves eat lambs. You know that, right? They, they devour that. It's kind of like Stephen Layton at McDonald's. Lambs are eaten by wolves all the time. Wolves love lambs. So Jesus is saying, hey, guess what? I'm sending you out. There's few of you. There's a huge harvest. There's a Lord of the harvest, but I'm going to send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Have fun with that, all right? Carry no money bag with you. Remember back to chapter 9, verses 1 through there, the the beginning of that. The same sort of scenario. When Jesus sent out the 12, he told them to take nothing with them. When he sends out the 72, he says, take nothing with you. Instead, take the vision of eternal life. Take Christ with you. You're sending out among uh, lambs, among um, wolves, carry no money bag with you, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one in the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Now this is an interesting scenario. Some of you are going to have difficulty with it. Because Christ just said something to these he's sending out. He said, greet no one on the road. You can underline it. You can highlight it. You can struggle through this this week as we get to the Good Samaritan parable. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer 
deserves his wages. And do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Notice he put, he put out there, as you're going out and as you're going to do these things and as you're representing me, as you're representing and you're putting the majesty of God on display and you're going out as ministers of reconciliation to those who have been separated from God, to those who have been lost from God, as you go out and minister as ministers of reconciliation, look for these things. Look for those who are sick and heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this. The kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than than for that town. So we're talking about a little bit about judgment here. And he goes on to say in verse 13, he calls out some specifics. And he says, woe to you, Chorazon, and woe to you, Bethsaida. Remember back to chapter 9, verse 10, on the return... The apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them, and they withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Right? So here, one chapter away, if you remember what happened in Bethsaida, a miracle happened. Christ worked. Not only was Christ with the people there, not only was healing happening there, not only was miracles happening there, but he fed them. He gave them life forever. Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So Christ is saying, look, a great work was done in you, Bethsaida. A great work, a great mystery was revealed to you, so to say. And you did not repent. You did not turn around and follow the Lord, but instead you continued in the way that you decided to go. But it would be more bearable in the, in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be entered, exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. See, repentance is about us repenting from our own ways, about us claiming and saying, Christ the Lord of my life, he's worthy of following. So all the things that I wanted to live for, that I thought was necessary for my life to be about, Christ comes in and gives me a picture of what eternity looks like, and he gives me a, a picture of what I should be living for. And my life should be turned around and living completely for him because he's worthy of my entire life. And then joy happens. Verse 17 says this, The 72 returned with joy. They went out as Lambs in the midst of wolves. They went out to a broken world where sickness is everywhere. They went out to a lost people and they returned with joy. You know why they returned with joy? Because their focus was set upon Christ. They saw who the Lord of the harvest was. They saw how powerful God is. They saw that the words that Jesus are teaching in this scenario are truth. They saw that Christ is really who, who he says he is, and he's worthy of being followed. And they returned with joy. And they said this, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. I mean, how incredible is this, Lord, that we went out as sheep among wolves. We went out to this broken world, but even the demons, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I... I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over uh, all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. 
which is a great word. I've given you this power, but listen to this. Nevertheless, verse 20 says, do not rejoice in this. Do not rejoice in the power that I've given you. Do not rejoice in the fact that you have power over serpents and scorpions and Satan under your, under your power. Nothing shall harm you, but instead, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but instead rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What, what does he do? Their vision was set in this moment upon the things that they could do. Look what we can do. Look how awesome we are. Look that we can step on these things. Look that we can go out as lambs among wolves and not be harmed. Look at how great this world is and how great we are. And Christ immediately turns their vision and says, look at eternity. Look at heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Like this is what it's about. As we represent Christ, as we go out and love our neighbor and we show mercy and compassion, Christ doesn't just get in our shoes so that we can have power from him. He doesn't just come and show mercy to us so that we can live a, a blessed and bountiful life upon this earth. Christ died for us and showed mercy upon us so that our names could be written in heaven, so that we could be no longer separated from God for eternity and experience death. But instead, he died for us so that we could experience life forever. And no longer be separated from God the Father, but instead be righteous in his eyes and be with in right relationship with him forever. And so in that same hour, verse 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, he rejoiced that he taught them these things. And he rejoiced in this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son. No one who knows the Son is, is uh, except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see you, see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see. And did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and didn't, and did not hear it. Christ is opening their eyes, and in this morning, my hope is that He's opening our eyes to who He is. That our eyes are seeing Christ for who He is, what He's done, what He's doing, what He's going to do. That our mind and our vision is set upon eternity, so that when we are called to love God with everything that we are, we can actually love God with everything that we are, because we have an understanding of who Christ is. Our our vision of him is growing. We call this the process of sanctification, that as we're being saved, Christ is revealing more and more about himself to us, and we're being saved, we're growing in the likeness of Christ, we're seeing him for who he is, and our love and our affection grows more and more for him. Verse 25 says this, Great things just happened. Rejoicing just happened. People are following Christ. Christ is sending them out. They're coming back, though as sheep among wolves, are coming back with joy because of the work that he's doing. And then a religious folks, and then the religious folks come in, come into play. Verse 25 says this, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Because remember back to verse 20, rejoice that your names are written in heaven, heaven, eternal life. 
So, so we want this. We want our names to be written there. So what, what must we do to inherit this eternal life? What a great question. And so Christ answered him and he said to him, what is written in the law? What, what do you already know? What has already been explained to you uh, concerning eternal life? How do, should you receive this eternal life? And he said, he said, how do you read it? And the young or the lawyer, the religious teacher here, he says, uh, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. A couple of weeks ago, we studied Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you remember, these were the instructions that God was giving to these Israelites as they were about to enter into their new land, or this new life that God had given them. You remember the Israelites who were slaves to, to Pharaoh, they were living a life of slavery, not free at all. And so what did God do? He came as a, a rescuer, full of mercy, and he freed them from their slavery. He freed them from that, and in so doing, he gives them a new life and a new land to live in. And in this freed life and this freed land that he gives them, he says, these are the things, this is how you're going to represent me. You, you need to know how to live as freed people. See, see, once in slavery, you only knew this way to live. But now as I've freed you, you, you need to know the new way to live. And so one way of teaching others about who I am is to love me with everything that you are. Every bit of who you are, love me with all of that. Love the Lord your God, the one and only God. Love him with everything that you are. And so this teacher, this lawyer, he gets it. He says... The greatest commandment here, if I want to enter eternal life, is to love God with every bit of my life. Our, our uh, six-year-old says all the times. All the times I think this, and all the times I think this, and all the times I think this. All the times you love God. Every moment of your life, with everything that you are. No separation. We live in a world of separation, and God is saying, with everything that you are, do not separate any of you, but give me every bit of you. Give it all to the Lord. Love the Lord your God with everything that you are. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And as we talk about that, I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. It's in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 19. We have these rules. We have these instructions that God gave to his people as they're representing him upon this earth. You were separated. Now you're no longer separated. So live in this way. You were slaves. Now you've been freed. So live in this way. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. How can we in our world today become holy? How can we be set apart? How can we be sanctified? Only through the blood of Jesus. You shall be holy, for the Lord, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Uh, every, every one of you shall re uh, revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I'm the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. 
When you offer a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same uh, same um, same day you offered on the day after. And uh, anything left over until that until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten all on the third day, it is tainted. Uh, it will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that the person shall be cut off from his people. So here in this section, God is pointing out, I want you to be a holy people. I want you to be set apart. I want you to be different. I want you to be different from the rest of the world. I want you to be set apart, and I want you to be holy and righteous. And then he gets on to say, in your holiness, this is how you will live. And when you reap the harvest, verse 9, of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest and you shall not strip your vineyard here uh, bare neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner I am the Lord your God you shall not steal you shall not deal falsely you shall not lie to one another you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of the Lord your God I am the Lord you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him the wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put the stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord your God. You shall not, uh, you shall do, uh, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord your God. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord your God. So in these instructions that God gives Israel, he's setting them apart. Here's how the world lives. They judge unjustly. They have hatred in their heart. They bear witness falsely. They hate their neighbor. And as a follower of me, as one that's been rescued by me, you will be different. You will bear not bear a name falsely or a witness falsely. You will not have hate within your heart. You will love your neighbor as much or as you love yourself. God is setting us apart. And when Christ comes to this earth, earth and he frees us from sin for all eternity through our confession of him as Lord and through his sacrifice and his blood that he shed for us. When he calls us to love our neighbor as if he's setting us apart from the rest of the world. No longer be like the world, but be like Christ. So back to Luke chapter 10. You shall love your neighbor and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Simply stated, how do you love yourself? I'm looking at you this morning. One way that you loved yourself and you loved others was by clothing yourself. How do you love your neighbor as, like, as you love yourself? Help clothe someone. How do you love yourself? You usually eat. Feed your neighbor. How do you love yourself? You usually drink. Drink with your neighbor. Not in a unbiblical way, but drink with your neighbor. How do you love yourself? You usually provide or try and get some kind of shelter for yourself. Those are basic needs. Those are basic ways that you're showing love to yourself. Do those for your neighbor. All right. And so verse uh, 28 says this, And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. If you love God with everything that you are, 
You repent of your old ways and you say, my ways aren't the best. I'm going to say Christ and his ways. God and his ways are, are better. Uh, I'm going to live for him. I'm going to repent and turn around from my old ways and live for Christ. Call Christ Lord of my life. Confess him as that. Uh, but believe that he's going to forgive me of my sins and I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. I'll have life. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That's the question. It's the uh, culmination of all summer together. Who is your neighbor? Literally, is it the one next door? Is it the one that you work with? Is it the one you uh, talk to at the uh, the bank uh, park? Uh, is it the drive through at the bank? Is it somebody you eat with? Is it someone you see on the side of the road? Is it a family member? Is it a long lost friend? Is your neighbor on Facebook? Who is your neighbor? See, this gentleman asking the questions to Jesus, he felt like probably, I'm going to assume this for him, but he felt like he had the whole loving God with everything that he is. He had that down. As a religious person, he's like, oh, I know for sure. I love God with everything that I am. I'm just not clear on how to love my neighbor as myself because particularly I'm not even sure who my neighbor is. He desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus in his kind, compassionate, merciful way, corrects him and teaches him, saying these things. Jesus replied with a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And he goes on to say that this basically is the neighbor, the one who is broken, the one who is harassed, the one who is helpless, the one who is half dead. Now, there's probably a lot of optimism in the room. And so some of you are thinking, well, at least he's half dead. He could be uh, a quarter, uh, only a quarter alive. But instead, he's, if he's just half dead, he must be half alive too. So I'm going to just pass by on the other side. And he goes on to say, verse uh, 31, Now by a chance, a priest who is the highest level of all religious uh, uh, you know, levels within Judaism, the priest walks by. If anyone is going to show um, how to be a neighbor, because he knows Leviticus 19 by heart, he can share that without having to turn to it. He knows it, and so because he knows it, obviously he's going to be a good neighbor. By chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Oh, woe is that priest who actually saw the one who was helpless and harassed, who was in need of help, who was in need of compassion, who was in need of mercy. He saw him, and he did not help him. And then the second in command, the worship leader, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A Levite, one who ministers in the temple, one who performs these uh, ministries, who, who serves God, whose job is to serve God, whose uh, whole job description is set up for him in Old Testament ways. Surely he knows how to, how to neighbor. Surely he knows what neighboring looks like. Uh, we know for sure that the Levite loves God with everything he is. We know that he knows what it means to love his neighbor as himself. So surely he knows how to neighbor. But instead, he saw this gentleman helpless, harassed, half dead, and he walks by on the other side. And so likewise, this Levite came to the place, saw him, and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, you remember the Samaritan? The very people that just a few verses back, Jesus and his disciples were passing through Samaria, and Jesus' disciples wanted to rain down fire upon them because they're not worthy of Christ. They're not worthy of Christ's 
uh, forgiveness or his mercy or his compassion, rained down fire upon them. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. And when he saw him, he responded with compassion. When we go back to our hospitable Savior, this is exactly what he showed to us. I mean, this picture is the picture of our Messiah. He looked at us. He saw us half dead. He saw that we were not alive. He saw that we were helpless, that we were in need of mercy. And though we are not deserving of that, he, he gives us mercy. He steps into our shoes. He takes time out of, out of his way. He takes time and he gives us his life. What does this Samaritan do? He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set on him his own animal and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay. And when I come back, when, when I come back, does this not sound like the picture, a picture of the Messiah? Like I'm going to leave for a little while, but I've bandaged up his wounds. And this process of healing has began. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to return. And I'm going to take care of it all. And he said, the one who showed, Jesus asked him, so which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and continue to go and don't stop going. Go and go and go and go and go and do likewise. So how do you neighbor well? You show mercy. You, you, you don't try and set up and say it within levels. Is my, is, my neighbor, is my neighbor worth forgiveness? Is my neighbor worth my love? Is my neighbor worth my time? Is my neighbor worth my compassion? But instead you extend mercy like our Savior has extended mercy upon us. We're not worthy of being forgiven. Yet Christ loves us so much that he steps in our place and offers forgiveness for a lifetime on this earth and forever with God in heaven. How do you neighbor well? You put that on display. You say, this life is not about me. Though I want to love myself more than anyone else in this world, Christ has called me to love my neighbor as much as I love myself. And in doing so, I must deny myself so that I can love my neighbor. I must take up my cross and follow him. I must love God with everything that I am. I must set my vision upon eternity. When you come back tonight at 5, we'll, uh, we'll end chapter 10 together. And we'll talk about Mary and Martha. Though we started it last Sunday night, we'll, we'll talk some more about Mary and Martha tonight.